0: Hi guys. I know it has been a ridiculously long time. I have been um contacted by many people asking if Reactive Attachments is going to be back and if we're even still doing the podcast. Um and I just want to tell you yes. Um a lot of things have happened. It has been quite a journey over the last almost a year. <laughs> um Ultimately, I'll explain some of those things at some point, but I have so much important stuff I want to discuss, and I'd really like to just get right into that. So, um, I'm going to start by saying welcome back to Reactive Attachments. I am trying to get the social media going again. Um, I do have a lot of content that I've made. I just got to um, you know, get the posts up and kind of coordinate the uh, social media agenda for the coming week and whatnot. Um, I'm gonna try to be organized with this podcast as well but my guess is that probably will not happen (laughs) so hopefully um, you guys have missed us enough that you're gonna kick back and just kind of um, hear me ramble for a little while. Um, I do want to start with a couple of Important um, disclaimers, I am going to be talking about some psychiatric and psych- psychological theories that we have, and I say we, I mean between the group or um, other reactive attachment disorder parents and caregivers, um, parents in general, and of course Danielle and myself, and um, just theories that we've been kind of working on researching, developing, discussing, and while they are not medically um, sound, quote unquote, if you would say, you could say that, I guess, uh, they have proven to be a trend. And we've, you know, like I said, we've re- done a lot of research, m- reading case studies, um, doing the medical research, and then as well as just like speaking to unbiased parties in the community on a lot of these topics, and um, maybe you know that I'm pretty stubborn when it comes to some of these theories. I really believe them, and I'm just going to go ahead and put them out there. So, um, one of the things that I want to talk about that's really important is, you know, we are not a um, solution for... um, if you're having issues with the reactive attachment disorder in your household, we are not the end all be all these theories are not, um, to, to, to stand in for real medical help, um, for real medical diagnosis, for real medical, um, intervention of any kind or therapeutic intervention. However, I will say that a lot of people in this community are so frustrated and they're so tired of, the system that is so broken. Um, you know, a lot of people are developing their own method, uh, methodologies and their, their own, um, you know, kind of experiments, if you will, as far as like how to deal with behavior, how to deal with food, how to deal with, um, hygiene issues, how to deal with aggression, um, how to deal with (laughs) the, the litany of things that come along with reactive attachment disorder. But I want to take a step back. Um, I want to take a step back and talk about something that's Equally, if not more important to me than my advocacy in the reactive attachment community. And that is um, for one very specific reason. Um, Fentanyl, I don't know if anybody listening has, I mean, I can't imagine that every person that hears this podcast, whether that's five or 300 or whatever, um, people have not been affected by fentanyl. Because the amount of deaths that have occurred in the last um, three to four years that are fentanyl related or caused specifically uh, by fentanyl are staggering. I think it's the leading cause of death, especially in the demographics of, um, you know, uh, young adults. I think it's like age 20, 25 to 35. Excuse me. Um. I mean, it's killing more people than suicide, than car accidents, than heart disease, and it's killed a lot of people, a lot of people that we know, associates, family, friends, um, and it doesn't stop. You know, it just, it doesn't stop. I'll get into more about my high school bus friend who's currently um, living with us after a near-fatal overdose on fentanyl. Um, He is um, unfortunately he was, um, addicted to heroin, AKA fentanyl. And, um, he had been in jail and he, um, relapsed. Um, and he definitely has one of the most severe, um, recovery stories. Luckily, luckily he has a Recovery story because most people either live and they are fortunate to receive the life saving drug Narcan and they are fine, um, quote unquote fine, or they die. Um, and he kind of is stuck in between those two things, but I'll get into that later as well. So, what I want to really discuss is the fact that we're looking at hundreds of thousands of deaths in um, the last five let's just say five years, um, and then of course the upcoming years because fentanyl is now, um, it's, it's, it's synthesized, it's, a, it's an opioid um, that is synthesized in clandestine labs. So these aren't most, most of these, I would say 98% of these deaths do not occur from medical grade fentanyl in the sense of like it's not um, being administered in a hospital and causing deaths. What it is, is it's being synthesized in the streets, um, mostly in China and Mexico, and it's being smuggled here in place of heroin and opiates. Um, As we all know, the the pain pill prescription medication epidemic was out of control. They cracked down on that, which caused an influx of heroin. Um, And then fentanyl, because fentanyl is in Insanely potent, and so you can get a lot of it smuggled in for uh, a lot less risk and a lot less cost so um, now people are seeking out fentanyl they're actually addicted to fentanyl, and the withdrawal um, the time frame and you know that people have to um, get more fentanyl before they're sick or um, you know be in a lot of pain is is even less than with heroin, so the half life there is really short. And it is just kind of a nightmare. What does that have to do with reactive attachment disorder? Well, a lot. Um, We have lost so many young people that have children. Those children were probably neglected in some way before the death of their parent. Um, Maybe their parents were in and out of jail or they were on and off the street. Either way, um, the, the absence of of that parent is now permanent. And so they're either with family members or in foster care and the number of human beings that have died, just the mere number, um, in the age group, you know, these are in reproductive years here. So is bananas. I mean, it's absolutely bananas. So that is kind of why I wanted to preface the the fentanyl conversation and segue into it really quickly. If we think for one second the reactive attachment disorder, and again, I'm just going to refer to it as that because I know there's been some changes. We have some protocol changes, um, and I'm not even going to address that yet. So now if reactive attachment disorder was rare, um, let's say over the last 15 years that I've been dealing with it, can we still say that it's rare? Can this very broken system of inept humans with, um, Secondary motivations um, to get children placed quickly, to put children in homes, get them adopted out, fostered, etc. Can these human beings still confidently convince themselves and others? Reactive attachment disorder is rare. When in Florida, for example, we literally know roughly 20 to 25, if not more, people who have passed away, um, many of them having children, very few of them did not have children involved. So these are, um, you know, a variety of ages and some of them as young as seven months old. So we have babies that will never see their mother's face in person because she died. We have, um, you know, five children that start at the age of like probably seven. And this is a, these are specific scenarios, Seven or eight, they go all the way up to teenagers. I think the oldest maybe in this case of these five is um, 18 or so. These children, their mother pass away. Um, they are being raised in a household with their father as well as his long-term girlfriend and his children from another um, relationship. A lot of you know factors there. Their primary caregiver for the majority of their life was their mother. And I don't think they had been spending any time with her when she did pass. It was very unexpected, of course, like it always is. So I could go on with the scenarios, but it's irrelevant. The point is, how are we going to deal with the next generation of children that come from a ridiculously staggering amount of trauma, of death, of neglect, and abandonment, um, of inner family, um, child rearing, of foster care, of inundated systems that are already broken as it is how are these children on the backs of you know a generation that's already having a a wobbly go of it if you will going to create and form relationships when we can't even admit that this is such a widespread real problem um i'm very concerned which leads me to my next point when um over this last year I've done a lot of research, done a, a lot of really um investigating the biological parent that is a healthy parent with attached children that are very well adjusted. Um just kind of really trying to get to the heart of, of things. I I did lose my mom, um, and I lost my mom too an accidental fentanyl overdose uh, back in 2016. And I can tell you that I was very attached to my mom. So though I don't have any biological children, I am the child of a very bonded um, mother. So when my mom passed away, I, um, I don't know how to explain it really other than just to say that I could physically feel her absence in the universe. Like my DNA knew that she was not on this planet anymore. Um, the loss is devastating. I mean, it is literally the most pain is physically painful. I had absolutely no idea that I could grieve so hard that I could feel so much pain. So, you know, I spent a lot of time asking parents, especially moms in the rad group that had bio children and, um, and adopted or foster, foster children, stepchildren that, you know, uh, have attachment um, issues. We'll just say attachment issues. Okay. You know, I'll never have biological children. I know it's different. We know it's different, you know, raising a child, even if you sought that child out, adopted it, had it its whole life, whatever. We know it's different than biology, right? We just, you know, we have to face that. We may love them, as much as we're capable of, and that love may amount to the same, but the connection of growing a child inside of your body is different. So, um, a lot of, I would say, gosh, I I mean, I asked this question to so many moms, um, to start and most of them say they cannot explain to you what their love for a biological child feels like. They can't put it into, to words. And I thought that was interesting because I'm like, Never at a loss for words myself, so you know I keep asking, I keep asking my best friend explains to me one day that it's like um it is like every time she looks at her daughter, who is four, and she also has raised um a child that is genetically family but is not you know her bio- biological child. She says every time she looks at her daughter, she feels like. Um, how did she say it? Her words were, "I thought this was excellent." Um, she's still a baby. It's like she's still a baby, even though she's four. She can look at her and she still she still feels the feelings um, that she felt when she was a baby. So I guess like when parents say, "Well, you'll always be my baby," it's it's basically true. Like that protective drive is still there. Um, the validating of you know asshole tendencies is there because it's like that's my baby though that's my baby she's like um she tells me it's hard because if the child comes outside and I'm just not saying names on purpose here but if the child comes outside and it's like just you know being kind of bratty and trying to evade the rules but is using a story saying like oh i'm scared or i just wanted a hug she's like i just feel that. Like I feel and I know inside that like she really does just need a hug or she really is scared. And um you know, of course she says that she can see herself and so of course so can I but like she can see herself in this child. She can see um you know, just parts of her starting to develop in the child and it just feels like no time has passed. It's like she's still just a baby. So um she did a much better job of explaining it to me this was months ago um back in july actually and it was the first real solid straight answer um of any depth that i had gotten from another person about that feeling um and like i said i can speak to my mom and i can say um, when she passed i think this is such a telling uh, such a telling um validating you know response when we talk about mothers and children like when my mom died I literally could feel it physically inside of me it was so painful I belong to countless um, motherless daughter groups and while it is the most heart-wrenching thing to see everyday women um, talk about their life falling apart and how much they miss their mom and how it's been this long and they can't get over it and asking for reprieve and all of these things. It is wonderful to see so many human beings that are in fact attached and bonded to their parent of all ages, of all demographics, of all races, religions, um, from many countries and to see the amount of nurturing when you've been in a vacuum of, um, attachment disorder for so long, I, I get some kind of hope and inspiration from that grief, which may sound sad, but anyway. Um, so what I'm saying is this, we have an insufferable amount of loss and of attachment failures that are happening all around us right now, especially with this epidemic. What's interesting to me, though, is um, myself as well as I've noticed this trend among many people who I would say I have a commonality in thought with Um, over the last year, kind of how we've all collectively thought about parenting has really shifted. Um, I, I want to say this, that I did not think that I would be a person to ever make these comments or to even think about parenting and um, the the ability to parent in these ways. So um, I've really had a shift and it's a very important shift. And I think, I hope a lot of you hear this out and you, and you consider some of these things as well. Um, I'm just going to start with the heavy hitter, which is uh, individuals that are using drugs. And I'm not just talking about like pot or they drink a little too much or maybe they took a couple of Xanax that they shouldn't have but they were prescribed it or whatever. I'm talking even hardcore stuff, heroin, meth, uh, methamphetamine, cocaine, whatever. I do not believe at this point in my life that those parents should be removed completely from their child's life no matter how severe the drug addiction is. Let me say it one more time. Even what we would consider in our society, quote unquote, junkies should not be completely removed from their children's life, period, in my opinion. I feel very strong about this. Um, During the course of this last year, I have seen many other scenarios that have become um, the evidence for this feeling. I have seen with my own child this exact truth I've seen with my friend that I just spoke about from high school, this exact truth. Um, I have seen countless examples of this, this idea that no matter how crazy, no matter how, um, addicted, how sick, how poor, how broken, how even incapable of rearing a mother or a father, but a biological parent is, it is the worst decision as an outside source to remove that child completely, in my opinion. Here is the big push for why I believe this. Because I lived it. (laughs) And throughout... My mom grieving my mom, and you know, just reflecting on my life, and I try to be as aware and honest, rigorously honest with myself as I can be. Um, I really took a look at my childhood and the chaos and my mom's um, addiction, um, which was a battle for the majority of my life, um, that eventually led to her death, so I guess, you know, if that tells you anything. Um, My mom was an alcoholic and a prescription, um, opiate addict, but she really was just kind of addicted to not being sober while she had her drugs of choice. And those were the primary drivers. She really would break down and do pretty much whatever, um, in moments of emotional, um, incompetence she would find herself extremely depressed and and I mean like just lived in front of the television um for what feels like the majority of years uh, for some some portions of her life now with all of that being said she was extremely intelligent extremely emotionally um emotionally intelligent, even though that would, um, wane sometimes. And she would find herself unable, um, to use the skills and the, um, (laughs) the intellect that she had on board to get herself into a better situation for long periods of time. So drugs would, you know, inevitably become the, the crutch. So I dealt with that for a very long time. I was um, pretty young when things really kind of, the shit really hit the fan. Um, and I remember being, I had to be at least 11, max 12, um, when my stepdad and my mom really started to, to kind of just decay. Um, I remember hiding. I found a stash of, of pain pills and she was definitely supposed to be sober um, and I remember hiding them outside in this little ditch area behind our house. And I, I would protect her and I would lie for her, even if she didn't ask me to. Like, I would start manipulating the questions, like manipulating the person asking me questions so that I could try to protect her, so I could try to figure out what was going on and be ahead of it. And I was always terrified, terrified that if I got it wrong, if I didn't, um, say the right lie or cover her ass correctly, that I would be taken away. I had a very, um, interesting dynamic with my family where we like lived with my grandparents until my mom was married. And then I was off and on living with my grandfather and, you know, um, other, uh, maternal family members throughout my childhood and my teenage years and my adult life, let's be honest. So, Um, there was always the threat that one of the very close, but outside family members would step in and make decisions. Um, I feel like I felt that way my whole life. And I think I did, uh, based on stories and things I've heard. And then based on, you know, the events that I lived through, I think there were always conversations happening on the outside about if, if my mom was capable, if she should have custody of me, if they needed to intervene, blah, blah, blah. So, um, with that being said, there were multiple times that I was removed from the home. Um, and during these times I would be like a uh, place with my aunt or my grandparents, like I said, all of which situations were, um, better for me economically, educationally, like the neighborhoods that I would, you know, live in would be better. The exposures would be better. The, consistency of, um, say nutrition, education, clothing, all of the necessities would be more consistent. The scheduling would be more consistent. The exposures would be far less, um, severe. You know, I, I didn't have any reason to not feel comfortable in these places, whatever, but no matter what the case was, I was so connected to my mom, so concerned about what my mom had going on that I just literally like would never settle I couldn't be settled wherever I was placed Um, I couldn't feel permanently um, attached to a bedroom or a scenario I lived with my aunt for like right at a year in Georgia that was a whole mess because I just never settled in and I and I just couldn't um, check out for my mom now with that being said when I was younger I had a lot of feelings that I couldn't rationalize of course like of course you know when you're 11 12 years old you want your parent to prove to you that they want you back and that they're going to get sober for you because they love you and they don't want you to be miserable and afraid and they want you home with them just as bad as you want to be there Um, and a lot of times um, children are able to experience that Validation when their parent completes a case plan and they show up right on time, every visitation when they do everything they're supposed to do, parenting classes and drug tests and whatever, whatever, and then boom, they get their kids back, you know it was just a one off whatever um my mom did in fact complete case plans she did them in her own time um but she did complete them usually, I would go home though because I had showed my ass enough um that it was just. You know time <laughs> so I know that feeling of like why can't you get and stay sober for me why can't you Uh, like one time she was in in, in rehab for like seven six or seven months and the day she got out I had been saving all my money because I was gonna like in my mind help us financially and the day she got out she like relapsed so nasty and she was so faded and I was so upset um, and I was just literally heartbroken because I had just been seven months away from her and I thought for sure, like she was really going to do it. So I'm saying uh, this, the long drawn out story to, to, I'm telling you this to explain that like without going into too, too much detail, I understand the things that I'm going to express because I've personally been through them and I went through them for my whole life. Um, you know. I really did. So if you have questions or if you want to discuss something more specifically, you guys can reach out to me on social or um, leave a voice message for the podcast, whatever, if if it comes to that. So here's my thoughts. Um, There's a story about a woman who, uh, in a group that I'm in from back home, who was driving a filthy, disgusting car was full of trash, um, possibly with roaches in it, whatever, whatever very just ill, um, ill-kept car. So we assume obviously ill-kept home as well. Um, just not necessarily the safest environment for the children that were inevitably living there because there was a car seat spotted in the car or something along those lines. There's this big conversation that erupts and, um, there's a debate of people in this group saying you should have called um, children's services. You should have had them, you know, you needed to file a report. Those children need to be removed from that home. I can only imagine, you know, um, all of these things. And while years ago I would have agreed, yes, that is an unsafe environment for a child to be in. That is disgusting. That is dangerous. That is this, this, and this, but what is really the truth for me now is that a home that is that filthy and we've all seen them, okay we've all we we all know hoarded homes that just are biohazard homes um children grow up in these homes until there's an intervention if there is one, and they do not develop the ability to understand the importance or the skill set required to clean. They do not understand um boundaries and limitations to clutter and hoarding and filth and trash and food that has gone bad and hygiene they do not understand the stigma they do not understand how to get it under control keep it under control they don't have a drive to even want to do those things so we take the child out of the home we tell the parent okay you you don't have a skill set here at all clearly um it's probably generational and you're raising children in this environment so we're going to remove them put you on a case plan And we're going to say you need to clean it up, you need to take parenting classes, you need to do all these things. So now the child is put into a clean home, but the bond of of (laughs) the child and the parent has been, of course, you know, severed. A lot of times there's maybe some cognitive delays, so it takes um, the parent a long time to kind of get it together and get the child back, if ever. Um, There is someone very close... In my family, um, through marriage, who has many children that have all been taken away for this reason, and she has assigned herself, or resigned herself to the fact that she just sees them in a visitation center, and there's multiple children. Um, Her rights, I don't think were terminated, but I mean, all of the kids have had to be adopted out, and I think we're also talking about five plus children at this point. And it's literally for that reason and it was never corrected. It was eventually just left to the system and a new and not improved system of parenting was developed because now um, the skills were never obtained. They were never taught. The children were removed um, and it got to be, you know, I think the last few were removed from the hospital. Like they never even lived with their mother. Thinking that removing children from their biological parent, instead of placing services in that environment that will teach the parent and show the parent um, how to fix this problem and and work with the child at whatever stage that child is in, is mind-blowing. So now we have five kids in this scenario that I'm just referencing. Five children who will not have an attachment to their biological mother, who will not understand Why couldn't you just fucking clean the house and get custody of us? Why didn't you fight for us? Why didn't you love us enough to do what the court asked? You know, why didn't you want us? Um, They're going to be humiliated to tell that story, I'm sure. They are going to definitely also, these children are suffering themselves from cognitive delays and whatnot. Um, There is a genetic vulnerability when... Um, when you look at these types of families and it is definitely passed on and on and on and on. Okay. Um, and then we have these children who are burdened, uh, burdened by their, their parents inability to, um, follow through with their case plan. Right. So they have all of these emotional burdens, all these questions, they're lacking the the attachment that they should naturally um, have and maybe would have had because we're not talking about severe neglect and whatnot from drug use at this point. We're talking about the simple things that remove children from homes. Um, we're talking about poverty stricken families a lot of the time. We're talking about, um, again, generational poverty as well as generational um, uh, um relationship instability. So there's a lot of, you know, multiple father type situations There's some incest in some of these situations, um, down the line there, there are a lot of things that do not set these children up for the best opportunity as it is. And then we remove the child at an age that is so important for attachment and bonding because of something that really needs to be corrected in the home. Um, I normally would have been a firecracker about it. I would have been like, you know, zero, um, tolerance for this type of shit, but I'm really thinking like, wait a minute, how many families are fostering, are doing quick turnaround adoptions? How many families are in a scenario that is, um, has ruined their life, let's be honest here, has ruined their um, ability to provide the best environment for their own children, their biological children, because of things that should have been, the resources should have been allocated to the actual parent and the resources to maintain a, a bond um, to the best of their ability, should always be the number one priority, should always be the number one priority to make sure, like, I'm going to move really quickly here and just jump topics um, to drugs, because this is the one that really just eats, eats me alive. I mean, it burns my ass to think about it. And I was also involved heavily in this scenario, not only with my own mom, but with my, uh, with my rad and her biological situation. So Um, you know, when there is a drug problem, okay. When there's a, an allegation made and an investigation is done, um, and there is drug abuse that is obvious or is discovered in my home state of Florida, it's pretty cut and dry. Um, it's, it's pretty much the same thing every time. So, okay. There's neglect or abuse found called whatever, however it's determined, um, to be reported. So let's say there is a a salty friend of a young mom and she is in fact on let's just say pills because we were talking about Florida, so this was a relevant example for many years. So she's on pain pills, they are not prescribed to her anymore, so she is buying them off the street, she's abusing them. Um she's trying to hold down a job, she's a single mom. She has it out with another girl um who's also on pain pills and they have some kind of a debate over money. And one of the young women calls DCF on the other one. She tells all the truth, all, the, all this young lady's business. Um, of course, she knows it all because she's participating, but that's neither here nor there. Um, DCF, of course, has to follow up on this um, report and do their investigation and make a determination. So upon investigating this young mom, they find out that, yes... She, in fact, is, oh gosh, addicted to opiates, and she is buying them off the street illegally. She has a three-year-old, and um she is, you know, working, let's just say she's working um at a bar at night, and, you know, her mom and her friend and her new boyfriend, they're all, you know, trying to help babysit, and it's a whole, you know, shit show, right? She kind of lives with the boyfriend, kind of lives with the mom. Um, but for the most part, let's say three to four nights or days out of the week, she is with the child. She wakes up with the child. She feeds the child a less than desirable breakfast. She changes the child. They take a bath together before she has to take her to the daycare or to the babysitter. Um, you know, the child hears her on the phone. Um, they eat you know, McDonald's together. She might've used the child's diaper bag to steal things. These are all terrible things, correct? Like these are the things that make DCF say, okay, well, we're going to remove the child temporarily. We'll either place it with a family member for emergency, uh, you know, emergency placement, or, you know, the child goes into foster care while we get a case plan together. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times this scenario has happened to someone I know, to people i grew up with uh, to my friends moms you know when i was younger whatever this is this is what happens so they're put on a case plan that case plan is going to include them having to pay to drug test every week to or every other week to see their child for 30 minutes to an hour either at a visitation center or with a supervised visitor a visitation you know uh, a supervisor so Let's say it's twenty dollars. I think it's probably closer to fifty, but let's say it's twenty dollars a week to see your kid, um, because you have to take that that drug test. But then it's also another twenty dollars you have to pay to the visitation center or to the supervisor. So now you're at forty bucks. You also need to take six weeks of parenting classes that you have to pay for as well. You have to take um, you yeah. have to get your license fixed because let's say she has a suspended license. It's very common in Florida, especially. She has to have her own place. She has to have daycare, which she can use services, government services to get the daycare. But she has to have all of these things in place, um, a steady job that she's either home or she has um, qualified steady care for the child. So she can't be a bartender and have the boyfriend watch the child anymore. As a matter of fact, um, you know, they want to eliminate the rotation of boyfriends. So it's a very specific case plan of where she can and cannot um, leave the child. They did investigate the boyfriend's house. It's not suitable either. He has a felony. Mom's house, um, is, you know, a trailer that has holes in the floor and there's a bunch of dogs there. She can't be placed. The child can't be placed there either. So these are not places that are going to be suitable for babysitting. So now we have a young girl who has a drug problem. Okay. She has the whole absolute bag of tricks that comes along with being raised in poverty, um, She has a litany of things that she has to pay for in order to maintain contact with this child. Now, let's say she does the first two weeks, everything goes well. She got her license fixed, still has to get insurance on the car, but she illegally drives it to the visitation center to spend the $40 that she got from the boyfriend to see her kid. But she fails the drug test on the third week. Now... There are going to be consequences for failing that drug test. There are going to be um, people in place that are now going to... There's going to be more people in place to hold this, this young lady accountable. Um, the judge that is working this case is going to know that she failed a drug test. Um, she probably cannot see her child until she passes X amount of drug tests. The foster parents are going to know. Um, sometimes there are foster parents, like a lot of rad parents know this, that are fighting on the other side to get this child permanently. So what comes along with all of that guilt and shame and frustration and humiliation, of course, as well as financial strain. Now you have an addiction. You're fighting this addiction every day while you're trying to get your child back. In the meantime, you're losing authority as a parent with your child. You have a three-year-old, It's been a month and a half. It's been two months. It's been whatever. And a child that didn't have a system or any kind of a regulated, um, schedule is now starting to regulate. They're being regulated by either the foster home or whoever they were placed with. You're not part of that. Um, if it's an older child, say eight or nine, this child is in school learning, being disciplined, learning right from wrong, you know, having these types of conversations. You are not parenting this child. You're not part of the parenting of the child. So when there's a lesson to be learned, this young parent or these young parents, they're not um, their opinion, their parenting style or method. It's not questioned, right? So it's not, there's no consistency with what the child in care has been learning um, or how it's been learning. There is no... Um, system of communication with the parent who is now um, really on the outside. And so this child is is learning and being disciplined from other adults that don't consult with this child's parent. So the respect and the lessons the parent learns, that's all out the window. Um, And this has occurred. Like these really massive web, this massive web of fuckery occurs all the time or did you know maybe up until very recently for marijuana being found in a parent system um for failing drug tests for for marijuana has caused children to sit in foster care and lose a connection with the parent who is otherwise capable who is for the most part you know doing all the right things they have a job they go to work every day you know maybe they're um not wealthy but The things that are required, the necessities of life, are not laid out in a judicial manual. Okay? Every parent has their their own way of learning as they raise their children. And when we take huge chunks of time and we take parents that are really in need of services themselves and we take the child out of the home we give it a stability that it hasn't had by a parent that isn't it, its own parent. We've changed at schools or we change whatever system of um, awareness in life this child has, right? We also forget about the, the moments where we have court and the foster parent is talking to the paternal aunt. And she's frustrated because there's been behavior issues and mom just failed another drug test. And so now you're in the car you're on your way to court, and you're basically shit-talking the parent. You're, you're shit-talking this young mother. Um, and it's a burden to you as a foster parent that's trying to have rights terminated or whatever. Um, you're frustrated, and you need to get that off your chest. And it's perfectly normal to complain about um, your life circumstances and, and her behavior. But these children pick up on these small things, and they lose respect. But more importantly, they lose hope they lose the bond, whatever bond they had, they start to feel and incorporate these feelings that are very negative, very self, um, self uh, destructive thoughts and beliefs. Oh, I'm not good enough for my mom. She can't stay sober for me. They hear parents saying things like, Oh, well, I don't know what to tell you. Like we said she could come here for Christmas. But she can't get her shit together long enough to come see you, so I don't know what to tell you two years into a case plan that's never going to be completed. Or all she had to do, all she had to do was decide to not take drugs, and you'd be there. I, I, I didn't make you come here. She chose drugs over you. I don't know what to tell you. And even if we don't say those exact words, that's exactly what we are saying when we say, I don't know why I called her. She didn't answer. She hasn't called me back. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm guilty of it myself. I mean... Um, you know, rigorous honesty with a child that has reactive attachment disorder is in my opinion, still the best way to communicate with them at a certain age, um, because beating around the bush and making up excuses, it doesn't really serve anybody. However, we say things to children because our feelings are hurt. We feel taken advantage of or, um, We feel taken for granted. Our homes are in chaos as we try to care for children that are begging, whether it's with their mouth and their words, or with it's their behavior or their very clear disposition. They are begging to go back to whatever hell they came from because all they want to do is be with their mom. For a very long time, that's what we see with these kids. They want to bio mom. They want bio dad. It does not matter what kind of life, liberties, um, privileges, belongings, things, gifts, um, accommodations you have given these children. They would rather go back to whatever shit show they came from because they just want to be with their bio parents. Some of these children don't even like have a fucking clue what they came from and they are willing to experience that. they've They've heard, oh, you lived in a You know, in a drug house, you didn't have any clothes. When they found you, you didn't even have on a diaper. Your mom was nowhere to be found. You slept in a a dresser drawer, like whatever it may be. And they're like, cool, like send me back over there because I'm trying to see my mom. And what I feel is so important about this is like we keep pulling children from homes for different reasons. And yes, there are many circumstances where there's no other choice. There's not a lick of service um, provision that could change the need for them to be immediately removed, the desperation for the child to be out of that home. Um, there are definitely lots of cases. I'm not talking about these cases. I'm talking about cases and I'm not going to justify or clarify or, or, try to re-break down what, what I exactly mean, because I think we all know what I mean. There are many more occasions where we should be working harder. We should be volunteering. People that are fostering, they get money from the state to take care of children. They provide less than desirable homes, many times abusive, sexually abusive, physically abusive, verbally abusive, crowded, um, unwelcoming, unkind, bare necessities only, and they're paid, not saying it's a lot of money, but they are paid to provide this very bare essential type of lifestyle for a child and it should be temporary. Meanwhile, the mom or the dad is paying for everything they have to do to prove to the court that they themselves are trying to, to get their, their child back in their care. And we have so many people lined up ready to adopt children that are not theirs ready to foster children that are not theirs. We have mothers who will only become mothers because of the system. Their own bodies will not allow them to procreate. And so they are trying to fill empty wombs. And therefore, they are eager to save these children. But are they saving them from a diabolical, junky, abusive, scary mom? Sometimes. Yeah, they are. Maybe. You know, there are times, absolutely. But are they also projecting the life that they refuse to give up on? This life that they dreamed of for themselves, that has children in the home. Um, The sound of children, and they've convinced themselves that now maybe those sounds won't be from their own children, but they need children in the house because that's the life that they've planned for themselves, and the silence is deafening. Or maybe they did have a biological child and they couldn't have a second one, so they wanted to give it a sibling. Like, these are not things I'm making up off the cuff. These are real, true things that women do. They become obsessed with the idea of having children to raise, that they will become, I mean, angry and protective and bitter, and and they will become the kind of women That do everything in their power to um, integrate into bio mom's role instead of trying to make sure that they've done everything they can to, you know, they've stepped up to this position, right? Like they are in this system and they are volunteering their life, their home, their resources to these children. So they haven't done everything they can though to make sure that mom had every single opportunity that she could have. To see the child, if she shows up on Thanksgiving and that baby has been waiting for their mom for a month and she has a buzz and we say, no, you can't come in, you can't see that child and the child sits in the window all day, disappointed, waiting for its mom to show up on this holiday and we send her packing because she has a buzz, because she couldn't show up sober, because whatever we have determined is a good enough reason to eliminate that child's ability to connect with its mom. We are not doing any favors to that child. My mom was sober and she was fucked up. Off and on, cyclically, up and down my whole life. I could literally tell you what kind of drug, based on her behavior, she was about to do. But I don't give a shit. I didn't give a shit then and I don't give a shit now because my mom still managed... To give me something, the love and the acceptance, the connection, the, the physical bond of like this human being made me and I'm part of her. Just like all of these people in my life are part of their mom. Like through all the shit, bad decisions that she made, all the selfish things that she did, the things that have affected me most, I'm trying not to get choked up my shit together here the things that have affected me negatively the things that I've had to work through the most and put the most effort into are the things that have caused her absence in my life now did she choose to not have me no did she choose to have to do all of these things so that she could see her children my brother I have a little brother as well no she did not she would have been just fine getting fucked up, having us deal with that in whatever way we dealt with it. It was never like, I'm going to drop my kids off and, you know, run the roads. It was, um, you know, the decision of other adults who were doing the right thing at the time, but those traumas and those absences and those, um, moments were more, Painful. They caused me more damage than ever seeing her fucking high or drunk. And I mean, there were some ugly moments. I am not going to take anything away from that. I will say the true human that my mom is, she didn't have a license for many years because of DUI. So like if I didn't drive, like before I had a car, I was sitting waiting for someone else to bring my mom or to talk to her on the phone or whatever it may be, if nobody wanted to go pick her up, drive to the other side of town, I didn't see her. And I always felt it, and it felt miserable, worrying about her, knowing that she was going to get high because she was disappointed in herself, the shame that she felt. When you lose your children, especially repeatedly, it is a cycle that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're, you're doing not a good job, but the best you can. And it's not good enough. Your children are taken away for a time and you're given a list of things to do to get them back. And that list is insurmountable to you because you need real intervention yourself. You need real help. You need real skills, not these um, you know, redundant parenting classes that are just provided by the state to help you. Get your kid back. Like you're not really learning anything. It's the same kind of, um, you know, you show up to a service center and a, a person who seems a little aggressive, maybe, or what is reading out of a book, um, you know, goes through their diatribe for an hour, signs your paper, and you leave. They need real skills injected into the situation. They need real services. And I'm not just talking about like, oh, we need a HUD house. Oh, we need a you know, food, we need food stamps. We need a compassionate, psychologically evolved human to come here and assess this cycle that I am in and help me get out of it and help me stay connected to my child because the world doesn't need a bunch of children who have no roots, no anchors with their biological parents. We have seen that. I have seen it. Um, over the last many, many years, and the damage that these children create when they make families, the the damage they um, do to the families that have taken them in, the um, inability to get sober for the parent who loses their children because of the drugs and then continuously disappoints and fails the child to the point where so much time has passed that now they've had another child and maybe they are sober but they like leave their oldest son with their mom to raise because they don't really know that child and they have two young children siblings of this older boy and now that child is half-ass bonded to the grandmother but devastated silently or maybe not um, about the fact that his mom could do it for his sisters she could get sober for them She didn't leave them with grandma, you know, they're going out with their, their dad and they're going to bush gardens and they're doing these things. And I'm not allowed because my grandmother adopted me and they don't know if my mom's sober or not, you know, and also I haven't seen her in seven years, so I don't get to go. Like, that's not a place for me. If I do go, it's awkward. If I do go, I just feel all this anger and rage about why not me? Why wasn't I good enough to get sober for Why wasn't I good enough to have this version of a life with my mom? I could literally rattle off those types of scenarios for hours. And I can rattle off hundreds of scenarios I've come in contact with in the group and in life that it was fucking unnecessary. There was another way to go about keeping these children in the home with their biological parent or parents. There was another way... To make sure that these children stayed attached, became attached, that the parents became parents, that they learned how to parent. Like you lose your two-year-old to the system for four years and you get back a six-year-old that has hella problems. You have yet to parent this child. You were doing the best you could for the first two years trying to just make sure that it had a clean diaper and food and daycare so you could go to work or whatever. But you have no fucking idea how to deal with discipline, how to deal with, um, emotional issues or how to deal with things that are oppositional or counterintuitive to you that your child picked up in foster care or, you know, um, beliefs that this child has adopted from whatever caregivers it had. And now you have this stranger that you made that's in your home, um, that may have rad that may have some other version of something equally as horrifying. And now you have no skills, no experience, no bond. And you're supposed to stay sober. You're supposed to maintain whatever fragile balance you have accomplished to get this child back if you've got the child back. And we think that this system works and it doesn't. It has never worked. It is very, very, very clear to me that there needs to be Radical change in how we go about doing things. And I actually looked up the laws for, um, uh, d- you know, for Department of Children and Family Service intervention in many of the states that um, I know people in or that I was curious about at probably about 15 states. And I read the drug, the 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 protocols and the sequence for um, removal and endangerment when it comes to neglect and abuse based on drug drug addiction. And it's all beautifully written that we are not trying to punish sick parents. We need to, you know, really assess the situation. There has to be extreme neglect and abuse, blah, blah, blah. That is not true. There isn't some magical, beautiful system of trying to make sure that these parents recover um, and that they are not losing their children for an illness, you know, that the system looks at it as an, as a, as a disease and they try to implement multiple steps to ensure that parents are not, um, struggling with, you know, insurmountable uh, mental health or um, substance abuse issues and also losing their children. That is bullshit. It has never been the case. It's not the case now. Um, I can tell you from not only experience but just from um from my research that I have yet to find a state that doesn't say that that is how they go about it and I have yet to find a state that proves or provides any kind of um <sighs> evidence that they have a, ge- a a genuinely organic careful system. That does not abruptly remove children for drug uh, test failure. Um, maybe they allow it once or twice, or something like there may be a grace period, um, like a buffer in some states. But these these protocols are are very, very, very commonly um, established and well-known protocols throughout the country, where um, there isn't enough time, energy, resources, or human bodies to deal with the problem. And and the fentanyl issue is making an already dangerous situation dire. So I'm going to wrap it up for now. I have so much more to say. I hope that, um, the small following that we gained <laughs> with our few podcasts that we were able to publish before, um, I've been contacted by a few people, like I said, and, um, eager for me to communicate and engage in with a lot of questions, a lot of stories. And I really do hope that you guys are all still around. Um, I don't deserve your patience or loyalty, but I hope that you are all still out there. And um, for those of you that I said I would contact personally and let you know when I published, um, I'm proud to say December 1st, I published. So I made it within the 12 months of the initial launch. (laughs) Um, but I will be back. I have, like I said, a lot of things to discuss with you all and, um, not, uh, I'm not short of topics or revelations or experiences when it comes to reactive attachment disorder. Um, again, I'm Taylor and I really appreciate y'all's time and we'll be back soon with another episode from reactive attachments. Thank you guys.